only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The National Weather Service has issued a severe thunderstorm warning. Welcome. To the Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast, where prepping doesn't have to be complicated or expensive. Coming to you from a well-defended off-grid compound high in the mountains. Coming to you from his Florida room in Richmond, Virginia. Neither off-grid nor well-defended, unless you count as chickens and cats, here is your host, Keith. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast. My name is Keith. And this is episode 39. Today is March 14th, 2023, also known as Pi Day. If you don't know what Pi Day is, today is 3.14, 3.14, get it? Pi? Okay, anyway, gas here in Central Virginia has risen yet again. $3.35 a gallon is what I'm seeing, give or take, in some of the gas stations as I see on my way to work. Let's talk about, do a quick update on the Delta Pro and the solar panels that I have connected to the Delta Pro on my array. A small issue. So I'm getting wattage into the Delta Pro and the extra battery, no problem whatsoever. Plenty of juice. But what I'm finding out is this. When the Delta Pro and the battery reach 100%, they're fully charged, and there's sun on the panels, It's not it, you're not going to overcharge the battery. So basically it says, okay, you can shine down on the panels, Mr. Sun, but I can't put any more in my battery. So basically it goes to zero. I get it, 100%. Then as I have loads connected to the battery and to the Delta Pro, I have my freezer, my fridge in the garage, and a few other things just to just to run it, just to see how well it does and how long I can maintain a charge. And what I'm seeing is once the main battery gets down to about 95, 96%, it's not taking in the solar input with the sun shining on the panels. Now you, there's all sorts of settings on the Delta Pro. You can say, hey, don't charge the battery any more than 95% or shut the battery off when it gets to 5%, 10%, 15%. I have mine set at 100% capacity is full and 10% is empty. So as soon as I see 100% and I turn on a fan or I turn on the freezer or make the freezer a little bit colder to increase the load, obviously the battery starts to drain. You would think at some point, 97%, 98 who knows, 99% that it would say, hey, we've got the sun shining on the panels. Let's top it off. It doesn't happen. I got down to about 92% and sun on the panels and it's not charging. Disconnected the cable, the, the solar cable. It's an XT60 from the back of the Delta Pro. Waited a few seconds. I heard a click. So something reset somewhere. Plugged it back in. A few seconds later, the fans kick on and here comes five or 600 watts of solar. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Check the connections on the array. Everything looks good. And it went ahead and then about 45 minutes later, it's back to 100%. Sun goes down. The next day, the same thing happens. The battery starts to drop a little bit because of the load. The sun comes out and nothing. Again, unplug it. Wait a second. Click, plug it back in. Fans kick on. Boom. Here comes the watts. So I have left a email through with Delta Pro customer service and they have responded back with the hey we've got your we've got your issue logged and we'll get back to you within a couple days. So we're going to go back and forth and I'm going to try to understand what's going on with that. I did post something on one of these DIY solar forums 
And another gentleman posted that he was seeing the same type of issue with his Delta Pro. He thinks it might be related to the latest software patch or something like that. So I would hope that a software patch would take would, would take care of this. Again, the I guess the, the solar input fuse or connector or whatever is not saying, hey, let's put some more solar on the battery, and then it's just not happening. So hopefully we'll get that figured out. I don't think it's going to be a huge, huge deal. Okay, the freeze dryer. Uh, last week I spoke about doing, we t- I talked about biscuits and gravy, but I also talked about meatloaf and mashed potatoes. So over the weekend I had to make a run to Costco and I picked up their mashed potatoes and their meatloaf. Went ahead and sliced it up, uh, spread the potatoes out onto uh, the trays, a pretty good, pretty thick um, slice of the meatloaf. And I posted photos of that on my Twitter, again, on my Twitter you can search Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast or the official handle is prep underscore podcast. So I put photos of that on my Twitter feed. So I go ahead and put the meatloaf down, potatoes down, and then I grabbed a, a bag of fresh green beans from Costco as well. So one tray was green beans, one tray was potatoes, one tray was meatloaf, and the fourth tray was half potatoes, half meatloaf. When Ed put it in the freezer, my regular home freezer, froze it overnight again to kind of kickstart, to give the, the freeze dryer a little helping hand so it doesn't work, doesn't have to work as hard to get it down to like negative 38 Fahrenheit is where it freezes the items that are on the tray. The next day, went ahead and put it in, got it all set to go. Now, normally, and it depends on what you have freeze drying, it will, it will go into a freeze cycle for about two hours, give or take. It'll get it down, eventually down to negative 38 Fahrenheit, and it'll be there for a while. And at one point, it'll say, hey, okay, we're frozen enough as if my freezer, I don't even know what my freezer is, but my freezer is definitely, definitely not 38 below. So it decides, hey, we're good. And then it starts the vacuum freezing cycle, and then it does all the other magic that it does to dry out your food. Well, it did its two hours, and then a little a little thing message came on the display, adding an extra 45 minutes to the freeze time. I'm like, well, maybe the meatloaf is too thick, whatever it happens to be. And then it added another two hours. All told, it added six additional hours to the deep freeze cycle before it actually started processing the the meatloaf. So I was kind of concerned about that. I thought maybe I had screwed something up. There was something wrong with the freeze dryer. So after the additional six hours, it then kicked in, started the freeze drying process, and total 21 hours, almost 22 hours for the complete cycle to finish. Now, I was trying to time this. I was looking at maybe 25, 26 hours. I was going to be home from work and actually finished up at like one, uh, 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, a couple hours before I got home from work. And then it gives you a certain amount of time to get to the freeze dryer, open up the, the, the relief valve, and then check your food to see if you need to leave it in for a longer period of time. If you don't do that within a certain period of time, it goes in kind of a standby mode and it drops it back down to negative 38. It's like, hey, I don't want to leave this food at 127 degrees. We're going to go ahead and drop it down and hang out until you get a chance to open us up. Got home, negative 38, and it was frozen solid and the trays were frozen too. I didn't want to expose that to the humidity in my living room, although it was relatively low, but certainly not as low as it was uh, inside the freeze dryer. So you have the ability then to add time to the freeze drying process. So I added two hours, the temperature comes back up under vacuum. So basically it kind of picks up where it left off. After two hours, 
it dings, open the um, relief valve, open the chamber, and everything is good to go. Uh, meatloaf is super, super dry. The potatoes are a powder, and the green beans, they just snap in your hands, and they just turn to dust. So I'm like, perfect, we got it. So now I go to my Mylar bags. I'm like, all right, I'm going to put them in Mylar bags, little mini MREs. I was going to put like a meatloaf, potatoes, and green beans all in one, but you know, then you put the hot water in there and you boil. I'm like, ah, it's not, it's just going to be a bunch of mush. So I separated, separated everything out. Here's all my meatloaf. Here's all my potatoes. Here's all my green beans. So I picked up an Avid Armor chamber vacuum sealer last week. Now these are a bit pricey and for the most part, the, like your food saver vacuum sealers, those are those are good. There's nothing wrong with those. The vacuum chamber sealers have a few extra features. There's some marinade features and some stuff like that. There's a lot of um, a lot of different settings. Well, there's kind of a learning curve to these. So without getting too deep in the weeds, when you put a bag of something to be sealed in the vacuum uh, chamber vacuum sealer, you need to take into consideration a lot of things. The more air that's in your bag, the longer you have to run the cycle. The more air that's in the chamber, once you close it, the longer you run the cycle. So it's kind of a cheat. They send, they send you these um, like heavy foam, they're called spacers. So you put these spacers inside the chamber to displace the amount of air, to, dis, to displace, I guess, decrease the volume inside the chamber so it doesn't have to work as hard as long. So again, it, it's just a trade-off. You don't have to put the spacer in, but you're going to run a longer cycle. You put in the spacer. I put one of my Dungeons and Dragons books on top of that, and I decreased the volume of air, of space within the chamber, and I went ahead and, and ran the sealing cycle. It can go 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 90 seconds. Again, it depends on a whole bunch of factors. And then the seal time Thick binular bags, you want to like eight or a nine, uh, four and a five for just the regular vacuum seal bags that come with the chamber vacuum sealer. Again, you just have to play with it and find find what works for you. So I have them in Mylar and I messed around with it. And it runs for, I think it ran for 40 seconds. And then when it releases, it just, everything just grabs onto the food, creates the vacuum inside the bag. It looked great. It sealed. One issue I thought I was going to have was my Mylar bags. They're not particularly made for uh, chamber vacuum sealers. They have the, uh, like the Ziploc closure, you know, like a Ziploc sandwich bag. Not all Mylar bags have that, but I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. I can go ahead and you don't have to heat seal all of your Mylar bags. You can have something in it, put in an oxygen absorber, seal it with the little Ziploc-y thing. And as long as it's a good seal, it's the oxygen absorber is going to obviously absorb the oxygen, hence the name. And you're going to have, you know, a longer shelf life. Well, the sealing bar I guess the, the 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 bar with the heat that seals the bag, the mylar bag ziplocky thing, was right on top of that sealing bar. So when I did that, I'm like, all right, well, it's going to seal the actual, you know, the heavy plastic of the ziplocky thing. Well, it did in most of them, but some it did not. So I messed around with them. I might, let me increase the seal time. And I thought I had it down. They all looked great. You know, they all like, you know, real tight in the package. And I had them sit down, went somewhere in the house to do something. I came back 10 minutes later and there was air already in the bag. The, the, the Mylar bag was not vacuum sealed tight onto the food. So the only thing I can figure out is that that plastic seal, the Ziploc-y thing, was not getting a very good bond. Even though when I tried to pull it apart, I couldn't. 
So this is what I did. I went ahead and took everything out of the Mylar, went ahead and put it into the vacuum seal bags that came with the chamber vacuum sealer, and went ahead and sealed it that way. Worked perfect, put in the spacers, put in the book, messed with the settings, got it dialed down. Now, those are clear vacuum seal bags. Obviously, you want to keep your food away from you know, light, uh, you know, temperature changes, you know, big fluctuations in temperature. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take those, let's see, there's like probably 12 or 15, and I'm going to drop them into one of my five gallon Mylar bags and just roll up the top and maybe put a chip clip over it, put it in one of my food grade buckets with the Gamma Seal or put it in one of my opaque totes and, you know, date it and everything and just file it away. Reached out to some folks that I follow on Twitter and apparently they, the folks that I was speaking with, they have one of these vacuum sealers. They're very nice. Again, it's just a learning curve. You just have to kind of mess with your settings. And it really just depends on several different factors, what you have, the type of bag, the thickness of the bag, and all the thing I mentioned before about the amount of uh, volume of air, of space inside the vacuum sealer itself. So all in all, I think it's a good product. It's not the end-all be-all. Is that how you say it? The end-all? The end-all be-all? Anyway, it's the cat's pajamas. It's not quite the cat's pajamas, but I think it's going to come in handy. Now, your Food Saver vacuum sealer, it that does a great job. Don't get me wrong. Those those are good, what, $100, $125, but I'm going to put this through its paces, and who knows, maybe in three or four months, I could say this was an entirely uh, a waste of money, or you know, I can find some other things to do with it and get everything dialed in, and it'll be absolutely the bee's knees. So it's not the end-all, be-all. It may not be the cat's pajamas, but it might be the bee's knees in a few months. So there you go. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Silicon Valley bank going under and then the two banks that followed it a few days later. Again, not to get too deep in the weeds, I am not a financial advisor, but this is what I know. When a bank goes belly up, that's never a good thing. We can go all the way back to 2008, Morgan Stanley, but Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns isn't even around anymore. You always heard the term too big to fail and all this happy horse stuff. So the Silicon Valley Bank is basically a bank that attracts a lot of investors, venture capitalists, a lot of people with a lot of money that were involved in startup companies, tech startups, that sort of thing. They were offered, they put in all their money, they were offered like a, a, a high yield, a high percentage on their money. And as the Fed raised the interest rates, that really kind of collapsed the, I guess, overhead or the amount of, of money that the bank had to play with. So this is how banks work. If I have $100 in savings, that bank is going to invest that $100. Whatever they do with it, that's that's their deal, okay? That $100, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a $100 bill. It's all digital. When they invest that $100, they just press a button. That $100... Let's say it's a $100 bill. That $100 bill is invested 50 different times. So it's not like they hand, you know, a, a company they want to invest in, hey, Mike's Roofing Company, here's $100. They literally send my $100 bill for the, you know, for the sake of the conversation to 100 different businesses. So 100 different businesses digitally get my $100 bill, which actually belongs to the bank, with the understanding that the bank is going to give me an extra dollar 
at the first of every month. Again, all digital. If you go into a bank and you see the fancy vaults, there's the money that you put in there and the money that all the people that go to this little bank put in there. You just can't walk in there and say, oh yeah, can you take me to my $5,000? And the lady behind you, oh, can you tell me where my $6,000 is? Oh, it's over here. Oh, there it is. It's like it with your name on it with a little sticky note. Oh, here's Keith's $5,000. Can I have that, please? It's not there. Banks have, relatively speaking, minuscule amount of money on hand relative to the amount of money that's been given them, given to them to invest. Banks invest in other banks, and it's really all just a shell game. It's all digital. When you get paid your direct deposit, you know, you work for uh, Acme Explosives. So when you get your paycheck for $2,000 every Friday, whatever it happens to be, it's all digital. You know, Acme is not like giving you $2,000. It's just a bunch of numbers on a ledger that's going back and forth to your bank. And then you go to your bank and say, I want to transfer 1000 of that $2,000 paycheck into my savings. And that's just a click of the button on your app or at the ATM. No one is like, there's not like a little dwarf or something. Oh, you don't say dwarf. What do we say? There's not a, what do we don't, um, height, height challenged person. There's not a short person. No, you can't say short person. There's a, there's not a person that's not very tall inside the ATM. When you put in your, your hundred dollars, this person that's not very tall doesn't catch your $100 and like put it in a little shoebox and put your name on it. That money goes into a big a big bucket or a big cardboard box. It'd be funny. It really does go into a big cardboard box in some of these ATM rooms. And then that's put into the system, but it's all digital. So when there's a run on a bank and we all go to our bank and say, can I have my $1,000 or can I have my $2,000 or the lady behind you, can I have my $6,000? That money's not there. There's no way that a bank, and now you think of large banks that have tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that are invested digitally digitally all over the world. If you were to go to your bank and every single person was to go to their neighborhood bank and say, can I have my money? They don't have that money. That money is not there. And when these banks invest my $100 bill a hundred different places, they'll do well on some of the investments and they'll do poorly on the others. So it's just a big balancing act and it's basically a crapshoot. So where this leaves me is if Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and the other bank that failed, if they can fail, all the others can fail. Bear Stearns, Morgan Stanley, all these other banks, Bank of America, they're all so overextended. They may say they're worth $2.2 billion or whatever. They don't have that. They don't have that money on hand. It's just like if China. If China wants to call in our debts and say, hey, US, pay us all the money plus interest. The money's not there. There is no way in the world we have that money to be able to pay off our debts. So the FDIC, they always, they say uh, your deposits are are guaranteed up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, here's a newsflash, folks. With one hundred percent certainty, I can tell you that I do not have two hundred fifty thousand dollars in my savings. However, if these banks fail, oh, oh, Keith, you know, yet two hundred fifty thousand. That's guaranteed. Who's that guaranteed by? Oh, that's guaranteed by the government. Wait a second. That's not very comforting, but yet the $250,000 is guaranteed. So the government stepped in, all these other folks stepped in with the Silicon Valley Bank and told all of these investors that they're going to be made whole. 
even the ones that deposited over $250,000, because a lot of these folks, 85% of the people that bank with Silicon Valley had deposits of over $250,000. So if you had a million, $750,000 just disappeared in the blink of an eye. The digital numbers just went away. So you're stuck with somebody's going to give you $250,000 at some point, but now the government has stepped in and saying, hey, don't worry, we got you covered. Where's that money coming from? We've already sent $100 bajillion to Ukraine. Now, please don't tell me that my $100 bill that I gave my bank, they gave to the government, and now the government's going to give Silicon Valley Bank that digital $100 bill because this is just a vicious cycle. But I have a feeling that you, me, and a bunch of other people, in the end, whether we like it or not, going to be paying to bail out Silicon Valley Bank. And again, I say little bank. They're relatively small compared to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and all these other larger banks, SunTrust, that's, they changed their name again. That kind of worries me that our deposits are guaranteed up to a certain point, but if the government is insolvent, and we're upside down on our debt, where are we getting Where are we getting all this money? Now, that $250,000 will go back into these people's account digitally. Now, if they walk down to the bank tomorrow morning and say, can I have my $250,000 in cash? I'm pretty sure they're not going to have several million dollars laying around if five or 10 people, 20 people come in. I want my $200,000, my $300,000, my $50,000. I want my $100 bill back. That that makes me nervous that if these little banks, relatively little, little banks will fail because they're playing fast and loose with the percentages and with the money that people are providing, what do you think the big banks are doing? In 2008, when the housing crisis happened, it took down a ton of banks. Bear Stearns, all these banks, they just don't exist anymore. They're just gone. Now the government bailed them out with our tax money and actually gave a lot of the CEOs bonuses. Tell me how that works. Doesn't leave me with the warm and fuzzies when these banks are failing like this. So that was three in the past week. There's going to be more. There have to be more. And I think people are getting a little nervous. So we're going to see where that comes. Part of me wants to go to my credit union and say, can I have my $100 bill back? And it would just start a panic. Like you think the the toilet paper panic of, of, of 2020 with the pandemic, you think that was crazy. You ain't seen nothing yet. There's one thing for somebody to make something. You know, the toilet paper thing, did somebody say, how did that happen? Who decided that we all need 200 rolls of toilet paper? Was all the toilet paper made in China? And then with the supply chain issues, we were like, we're never going to get toilet paper. It, it's funny that kind of a mob mentality. Somebody somewhere said, I got to get some toilet paper. And what they do, put it on Facebook. And before you know it, there's half the world running to Walmart to get all the toilet paper that was in stock. That's all it's going to take, especially with social media, is someone to say, oh my gosh, we all have to get our money out of the bank and can you imagine, I never want to be in that situation where I'm going to my bank, I'm going to my credit union, and there's a line out the door. Because just like I said a few minutes ago, the amount of money that is deposited on paper, that bank or that credit union does not have that amount of money. Okay, earlier today, or when it was late last night, or earlier today, the a Russian fighter jet collided with a U.S. drone, a Reaper drone over the Black Sea. 
both the drone and the Russian warplane, the Russian fighter, were in international airspace. And these they play cat and mouse with each other all the time. We fly off the coast of Alaska, and they come intercept us. We fly off the coast of Russia. They come out and intercept us. I think I just got that backwards. Anyway, you know what I mean. We intercept each other. We fly really close to each other. You know, and it's an international incident. The pilot is, you know, flying unprofessionally. They're just being a bunch of knuckleheads. It happens on a daily basis. We just don't hear about it because, again, you know, Russia is fighting Ukraine. So everybody's a little worried about Russians. But prior to the Ukrainian-Russian war, this stuff happened all the time off the coast of Alaska and then off the coast of Russia with our bombers and our B-52s and all of our stuff's flying, all of our planes flying around. And then they send up their finer jets to uh, to go ahead and intercept. But the drone, the drone went down. So it's down in the Black Sea somewhere. So I guess we got to fish that thing out. I haven't heard what the uh, the Russian plane, if it made it back, but apparently it was buzzing around, you know, uh, the pilot was being a knucklehead around our drone, and apparently our drone was just flying its normal pattern like they fly all the time, and the Russian pilot was was being a, a knucklehead, and they ended up crashing. I think the pilot's okay. Our drone is not. Now, I don't. I seriously, I don't think it's going to lead to anything, but it just kind of makes tensions just a little bit, a little bit more on edge. You know, thank goodness this wasn't a, a U.S. fighter jet that had pilots in it, and then the Russian pilot uh, goofing around, you know, causing some sort of uh, collision, injuries, death. That would truly be an international incident, and then that could be something that we would have to take very seriously. There'd be a bunch of saber rattling, and who knows? I'm not even going to go there to figure out what uh, what may happen in a situation like that. Okay, folks, if you want to reach me, Practical Prep Podcast at gmail.com. And I, I keep saying I want to get to some emails, um, but I'm coming up on time. But I do have some emails that I want to get to next week. Biscuits and gravy going into the freeze dryer this weekend. I'll let you know what, what EcoFlow says about the Delta Pro and that issue there. Uh, Delta Pro update. I'll let you know how the solar panels are doing. And we'll go ahead and read some emails. I hope everybody is enjoying their week. And folks, as always, please be safe out there, especially if you're flying a drone over the Black Sea. Please take care of one another. And until next time. Thanks for listening to the Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, help spread the word by leaving a rating and review.